Father, as we open your word, we desire that you would open our hearts, do a work in us to cause us to rest in you and to receive your tests as a good to prove the genuineness of our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have just finished the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. And what does Israel do right after they get done singing? Praises to Yahweh. They begin their time in the wilderness and they begin grumbling. They don't know it, but they're going to be here in approximately, for about approximately 40 years. These wilderness wanderings are a fitting illustration for what life is like after redemption. What is life like after you're saved? Should the one who is redeemed think that the rest of his or her life is easy? Rather smooth sailing, a, a walk in a park, or maybe a walk in a desert. Many come to Christ disillusioned at the subsequent journey that he then takes them on. Uh, maybe unaware or just for some reason uh, not knowledgeable or convinced that he will provide for us. He will give us everything we need, will not suffer any lack or want but he also will take us through the valley of darkness. So what should the Christian expect after coming to Christ and then living daily in the Lord and following the Lord? We learn from the end of 15 here, and we're going to go through chapter 16 as well, that life after redemption is a series of tests and rests. Life after redemption, the normative life for the Christian is a series of resting in him and having tests. Tests that, in that God tests the genuineness of our faith and rest in that God gives us seasons of reprieve. But these tests and rests aren't disconnected. We'll see as we go through Exodus 15, 22, down to verse 36 of chapter 16, the purpose of the test is often to see if a follower of Christ is resting. The test is to show, is the person continually resting in the Lord? Whether they come to a place where there is nothing, like Mara, or if they come to a place like the wilderness of sin, will the follower of God rest in God's provisions? Or will we fight the test, become frustrated, and for some reason or another desire to rest on our own strength and not the Lord's? Everybody in this room is somewhere in this passage. You are either in a period of testing or where you would rather be. 
a period of resting. You're going to have to figure out where you are. We're going to walk through this and see that when the Lord brings his people to specific places, and he does purposely bring them to places where they find themselves overwhelmed at the prospect of finding a bitter pool of water or no bread or whatever it may be. He does that in order to show his people they must continually look to him. Continually look to Yahweh. The, our confession of faith says, faith is receiving and resting upon Christ alone for justification and sanctification and eternal life. Faith is not just a one-time, I accept Jesus. Faith is a, no doubt, clinging to Jesus, and then also a daily resting and receiving of Jesus as we go about our lives. Because as we go about our lives, we find out we are quickly overwhelmed and outnumbered, <laughs> not only by the enemy, but even the numerous sins in our lives. So we're going to break this into two scenes. It's just a fairly simple message. There is the rest and test at Mara or Marah. That's the first scene. And the second scene is, is just as simple, the rest and test in the wilderness of sin. But that, that takes up the entire chapter of 16. So first off, resting and testing at Mara. The summary of this passage is that Israel comes to Mara finding bitter water, being out of water, and they grumble to God, and God, despite their grumbling, gives them sweet water. So, verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, they named it Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried, that is, Moses cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So here's a, a brief summary. They just got done singing Yahweh's praises. Three days prior, 
Three days prior, Moses and likely Miriam as well wrote this amazingly God-exalting hymn and they sing it after the horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Three days later, they start grumbling because they don't come to a place that they like. They come to a place that was bitter. Marah means bitter. And so they named it Marah. And you'll find out if you probably, probably already, some of you already know, but the, the, the name places are, are named for a reason in this wilderness journey. So they come to Marah and they, they find a bitter pool of water. Just, just note real quickly, I'm not going to camp on this, the fickleness of human trust. They were just singing Yahweh's praises. That is, that is not unlike today. We're singing the praises of Yahweh. You're hearing a sermon. Hopefully you go out fed and encouraged. And then on Tuesday, you think, God must hate me. I'm in a job that I hate. I have friends that I don't like. God must hate me. You are just singing the praises of God. <laughs> We're so fickle. We are so fickle. They go from singing to grumbling. The grumbling doesn't mean they're complaining about bitter water. Anybody would complain about bitter water. The grumbling is a questioning of God's abilities. And this is constantly throughout the rest of 15 and 16 and 17. And then we get into chapter 18, which is a kind of a parenthetical thing about how to, how to govern a, lot, a whole lot of people. And then you get to Sinai. And then the rest of the book of Exodus is about worship. How does this awesome, transcendent, sovereign, all-sufficient God desire to be worshiped? Right? And, and, and the other books of the Pentateuch, Leviticus, Numbers, they pick up the other side of Sinai and as they continue their wilderness journeys. However, on that side of Sinai, when they grumble, grumble, they get punished. You will never see a punishment here on this side of Sinai. They grumble, and despite their sinful grumbling, God gives them sweet water. But their grumbling is sinful. It's not just a complaint. It's rooted in disbelief. It is a questioning of God's abilities and motives, and it casts aspersions upon God's very goodness. Again, three days prior, hallelujah. Three days later, oh, go kick rocks. That, that's, that's the fickleness of human trust. And, and we have that. That is why our, our faith needs to be tested, to be genuine and sanctified. But instead of grumbling, they should have asked in faith. They are not being guided here by Moses, even though it says Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Remember, they have this awesome cloud, an awesome fire guiding them to go wherever they are to go. And God sovereignly brings them to a place where there is bitter water. The same Lord who sent plagues on the Egyptians guides them to this bitter, small pool of water 
they say, what are we going to drink? They cry to the Lord. And the Lord doesn't reprimand him. He says, Moses, get this log over here. Throw it in the water. It becomes sweet. Turns the bitter sweet. He turns the bitter water sweet. There's a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. And on the back of it, it summarizes the whole journey Pilgrim is on by saying, uh, first must come the bitter, then the sweet. That's, that's this. We need to learn that. The bitter will come before the sweet. I was trying to teach Shepard how to ride a bike the other day. And we're on the driveway. And he turns to me before. He's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, Dad, hold on. Is the curb going to be bitter? And because it's adorable, Shepard, he says, is the curb going to be bitter? And I'm like, what? Is the curb going to be bitter? He got it. We need to get it. I'm like, yeah, the curb's going to be bitter. You might fall. But the sweet will come. You're going to learn to ride a bike? You're going to be going all over town. But the bitter will come first. And then the sweet. This, this thing, this scene at Marat, it's just a microcosm of the whole journey. First bitter comes, the testing, we're saved by faith, we're worshiping the Lord, sure, but, but life after Christ is hard. By many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. There are bitternesses, but there are also sweetnesses. And God intends for us to rest in him. So they cry to the Lord, he gives them a log, he puts it in the water, it becomes sweet. And there it says in verse 25, he tested them. And how does he test them? Look at verse 26. How does he test them? By, but by telling them, I am Yahweh, your God. Listen to me carefully and be convinced of this. I am your healer. I am not intending to do harm to you. How often do we need to be convinced God is gooder than we think? He is much kinder, sweeter, lovelier than we think. But he has to convince Israel, I'm not putting the diseases on you I put on Egypt. I am your healer. I intend to do good to you. That sounds like an encouragement, but he says it's a test. Will you believe the goodness of the Lord? That's the test. Or will we look at our lives, bitter pools or sweet ones, and say, no, I know better. He is not my healer. He has brought me here and he means to do me harm. Funny, right after this, it says they came to Elim and there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. I actually don't take that, those numbers literally, not only because that would be an incredibly small amount for 2 million people, 
But we know that their numbers do mean various things in the Bible. And the numbers of 12 and 70 do refer to a complete and a perfect rest. He brings them to Elim. He says, almost as if like, when you trust me, this is what will happen. I will give you perfect and complete rest. So that's the first scene. The next scene is the resting and testing in the wilderness of sin. Wilderness of sin has nothing to do with like sinfulness or iniquity. It's just the Hebrew word of sin. But this is much lengthier. So follow along as I start to read the first eight verses. They set out, after, they set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that, they, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening ye shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning ye shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. So this next scene, Israel arrives in the wilderness of sin for 30 days after leaving Egypt. So it says in verse one, it's the second month, 15th day. They left Egypt on 114. They left on the first month, the 14th day. That was the Passover night. And they left that night. And for, so for 30 days now, they're in the second month of their journey. And they come to the wilderness of sin and they are, they are without food. And this affliction, this test affects their recollection. This affliction severely affects their recollection. How do they remember their time in Egypt? Do they remember it as picking straw and stubble up with their fingernails, making bricks, gathering their own stuff, being slaves, killed, infants, infanticide, thrown into the Nile? No, they don't remember any of that. They say, would we, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. That was not your existence, Israel. Their affliction is causing them to recollect wrongly, sinfully. 
Their life in Egypt was miserable. And that they're saying, it's way worse out here. <laughs> it's totally worse out here. Not to mention, when they say would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, that is a play on words. The plagues came from the hand of the Lord. They're saying, we would have rather died a swift, painful death than to starve out here in the wilderness. We would rather have gone under the judgment of God than to be freed graciously, guided miraculously by a cloud and fire than to be out here. And they make up this fairy tale about meat pots and bread to the full. That's what sin does. It affects how we remember things. But this, this scene is an application of, of the burning bush. Remember the burning bush. Angel of the Lord in the bush, in the flame. The bush isn't being consumed. It's not a normal fire. And the lesson there is God is an all-sufficient God. Yahweh is all-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody. Doesn't need Moses. Doesn't need anybody. This is a lesson of theology. What does it mean that God is all-sufficient? It means that his people should regard him as a storehouse, a treasure trove of sufficiency that as long as he is on their side, he will care for their needs. They have nothing to worry about. He is the all-sufficient, eternal I am. And they, <laughs> they don't need to grumble. They need to ask in faith. And, and what do they do after they grumble and lie? Yahweh doesn't punish them. How does God respond to their, to their sinful grumbling? kindness and grace. I'm going to rain, not water. I'm going to rain bread. And the people are going to go out every day and they're going to have all the bread they need. But I'm going to do this to test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So let's keep reading then, picking up in verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. Remember, he told them in verse 7, in the morning, you're going to look and see the glory of the Lord. So, the morning happens, they look, they see the glory of the Lord, and the Lord says to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. 
So God provides in this next section manna, the, what is it? Manna. <laughs> That's what we're going to name our bread. What is it? <laughs> he provides for them manna and quail. But this provision of manna and quail isn't just about their appetite. It is no doubt about their hunger gnawing at them. But it is also communicating this is the all-sufficient God. He will care for his people. And he's kind of doing a reverse plague, which would be a blessing. By the hand of the Lord, locusts came in, flies came in, frogs came in, hail came in. And by the hand of the Lord, quail come in. And from my research, it sounds like huge, uh, I don't know what you call groups of quail. Herds? Coverings? Cubbies. Okay, wouldn't have guessed that. So a bunch of quail, cubbies come in. And I guess they usually get exhausted from flying and they're able to be caught and, and gathered. And then on top of that, the, the manna is there. And it's covering everything in the wilderness. And so they have both bread and manna. Uh, excuse me, manna and quail. One for evening, quail. One for manna in the morning. But it's not just about the hunger. It's, it's the all-sufficient God showing them you're despairing. Let me give you hope. Our lives aren't just about, oh, I, I need a new job or I need this relationship better. No, they were despairing. That was their problem. And God gives them hope. They were fearful. And God gave them peace in the form of fluttering birds and manna. Whatever his people lack, God has an infinite amount of. So that in whatever way we are lacking something, and not just a earthly thing like food, but do you ever lack hope? Do you ever lack peace? Do you ever lack joy? That comes from God. And he's full of it. And he loves to give. He loves to be generous and give. He gives them, we'll find out in the next section, plenty and plenty of manna to collect. On the other side of Sinai, he'll give them a lot of food. So much food because they grumble, it's causing a plague. But here, he's dealing with his people so graciously, so parental-like, not responding to the grumbling with, with punishment, but with gifts and blessing. We pick up in verse 16. The story goes on. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it. Each one of you, as much as he can, you shall take, 
You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Sound like a Passover meal. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning and it bred worms and stink. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses had commanded and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Larger section here, but here is the instruction and application of what we just read earlier. And here's the test. Now we saw earlier that God says, I'm going to test them by giving them bread every day. And we might wonder, what's the test in that? What's the test in being constantly provided for? Well, they fail this test in two ways. First off, they distrust God will continually provide what they need. And so they want to ration it out. That's one way they fail it. They don't think God will give the next day what he gave today. And so they're going to ration it out. And under the guise of wisdom, they're unbelieving. It looks good. looks like they're being wise. Oh, God has given us a lot. Let's ration it out. No, God wants us to place our faith in him, to seek him daily, daily bread. And so they think it's a wise thing to ration out what they want. And he says, no, you need to eat it to the full. Enjoy the good provision God has given and enjoy it. So that's one way they fail. They distrust God will give tomorrow what he gave today. The second way they fail is that they exaggerate their abilities by looking for manna on the Sabbath. And I will just say, this is particularly appropriate to us. And not just Wyoming folk. But we think we are a hardworking, Protestant work ethic owning people. I don't need rest. I don't need to go to church. 
I'm going to work. Work is good. No. If God says you need rest, you need rest. They exaggerate their abilities thinking they can afford not to rest on the Sabbath and look for food when there's no food to be found. He says, I'm going to give you double portion on, sat- on, on the sixth day. I'm going to give you double portion so that on the next day, you don't even have to gather it. It'll just be there for you. Just bake it, boil it, enjoy it. How many gifts does God give us a large measure of, and we think, oh, I, be- I better ration this out. I think God is a Scrooge, and he may not give me this again. Or, mm, I don't need to rest. I'm going to keep working. No, we need rest. Why do we come here? We don't come here because we're just wanting to parade some religiosity. We come here because we need to behold the Redeemer and the rock of our salvation. We need to be told He is sufficient for us. We come here because we need to be told, I think I have it in myself to go on the next week without corporate worship. We need to be told, you're not enough. You need God and all that he is for you. So stop your calendar. Stop your weekly activities. Stop your, your activities, your athletics, your games, stop your work, and just rest. Just rest. What parent does not say to their children when every night their children say, why do we have to go to bed at the same time? Can't we stay up till 10 or eight or whatever it is. No, the parent's like, you don't know this, but you need a schedule and you need rest. Because if you don't get rest, we're going we're gonna to get that hell fired tomorrow. <laughs> God is the same way. He is a heavenly father who knows, Kyle, I know you think you can do it. But you can't. All of us in here think, do I really need worship? Do I need corporate worship? Do I need a whole day? God says, yes. I want you to order your life around my day. A day of celebration. A day of celebrating I rose my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, up from the grave. And with the power which I raised him up with is now in you as a Holy Spirit. And you are to work, provide for your family, enjoy God's great creation before the weather turns, and rest. Because you exaggerate what you think you can do. So the people rested on the seventh day. Verse 31, now the house of Israel called 
its name manna. Basically, huh? That, that's, that would be its kind of its slogan, its logo. Pack of manna in, the, in Albertsons, it would be what? It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Oh, that is so good. You know, we have you know, sugar, brown sugar, white sugar, non-processed, all this kind of sweet stuff, molasses, syrup, all this stuff, right? Honey was the sweetest thing you could get then. It was like, I don't know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It was sweet and good. And God did not give him some, give them some dry, bland, sufferable, insufferable manna. He gave them something sweet. It turns the bitter sweet. Moses said, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Let, her, let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. People of Israel ate the manna 40 years, so they came to an inhabit to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And no more is a tenth part of an ephah. Just in case you wondered, Moses says, I'll put that in there. So what do we have here as kind of a summary? This, these last few verses, Yahweh commands Moses and Aaron, I want you to memorialize what I've just done. I want you to take some manna, put it in a jar, and put it before the testimony. Later on, that jar of manna would be put in the Ark of the Covenant. Memorializing that God provided for them. Memorializing that he was good to them. He was their healer. Even when they grumbled sinfully, he provided for them. I'm not saying you should, but do take solace in the fact that when you pray with sin, God still answers. We have sin in our prayers. And God still answers them. If he waited till our prayers were sinless before he answered, we'd be praying a long time. But the goodness of the Lord is put on display here. So here we have multiple rests and tests. This last rest is the Sabbath. Rest. You're, you're walking. You've been slaves for 430 years. I'm going to give you regular periods of rest. Now, God is not testing their faith because he is uncertain of their faith. As 1 Peter says, he tests our faith so that 
praise and honor and glory would abound to Jesus Christ. God knows exactly the kind of faith he's given his children, but he tests the faith to refine it and to purify it, to make it shine. The faith you had when you first came to Christ should be not as shiny as later on after it's been tested with fire. Wilderness wanderings. Everyone in this room is in this passage somewhere. And no doubt about it, everybody wants to be at Elam. Oh, palm trees, water, it's a beach resort. <laughs> or Hawaii. <laughs> you can't stay in Hawaii forever. But he moves you like a shepherd, a sheep, moving you, giving you what you need, and all along supplying all that you need out of this grand, all-sufficient person. Of course, this manna, the Sabbath, the sweet water go way beyond what they speak of here. Christ is the true Sabbath. We have rest in a person. We become satisfied on Christ because he is the bread of heaven that comes down and gives life to the world. And he is the sweet water, which is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. All other wells, cisterns, are broken. They don't produce what you want them to produce. Only Christ satisfies. I know many of us here have, have come and know Christ and have been satisfied in Christ, but I also know if you have, you're also on a journey. Take stock of where you are on the journey. A place of testing is not just punishment. It is to, as Colossians tells, as Paul tells the Colossians, it is to qualify you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is to ready you for heaven. Think about that. You got to be ready to get in the glory. Get me qualified, prepared, ready. And God is making you ready for eternal, blissful, infinite glory and joy by testing you to see where you will put your rest. Will it be in Christ alone or in yourself or anyone else? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Find rest in Christ again and again. Retreat to him again and again. Let's pray. Gracious Father, forgive us when we grumble, doubt your all-sufficiency. When we cast aspersions upon you, doubting you, voting a, a vote of no confidence in you. Forgive us when we grumble. Thank you that you